get right into our reading uh, this morning. Um, but before we do that, I want to real quickly say this is Family Sunday, and so we have all the elementary age kids stay with us uh, for worship. Um, if you do need a uh, kids bulletin uh, in the door you came back, you can run back there. You can get some, a kids bulletin and some crayons, and uh, now would be a great time to do that, kids. Um, so we've been working through our kind of our doctrinal statement on Christ as it contains with Christmas and, um, you know, this is just a time to focus in on Christ. And so we're going to finish that up today. And so we'll read that statement once again, and then we'll jump right into our text after that. So if we get that statement up, we will recite this together. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man. One person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest, and advocate. Let's read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 and see if you notice any similarities here. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. Well, hopefully reading through that statement has kind of jogged your memory from all the... uh, the feasting of Christmas, and has reminded you of what we've been talking about, about Jesus being one person with two natures and just the importance of him uh, being both those natures and how that qualifies him to be our Savior. So as I said, this week we're going to be wrapping up this series, and we're going to be looking at that second slide and and many of the topics that we talked about um, in there. Like last week, this is more of a theological sermon and not necessarily an exegetical sermon. And so we're not going to be picking apart Hebrews today, um, but we will be talking about much of what's in there and bouncing around between a a lot of other verses um, to just help us to understand this concept. And so what we're looking at today is Christ's sinlessness and why it was important that Christ was sinless. And how it qualified him to be our savior, our high priest, and our example. Now Christ's sinlessness is often one of those doctrines that we almost take for granted, right? I mean, it's just so commonplace. We've been taught it since we were just little kids. And so it's kind of easy for us to um, just kind of glance over it when we read it in Scripture or to just assume it and 
And, and that's not really a problem unless somebody who's an unbeliever or just a baby Christian comes and asks us to defend that and explain that. And so I do want us to look at those verses today um, to just help us know why we do believe this. Where does this come from? Um, you know, are we just pulling this out of the air or making it up? No, we're, in, we're not. Now, there are many doctrines that we hold, such as the Trinity or the hypostatic union, the two natures in one man, that are not explicitly stated in Scripture. But rather, we have to do some deduction and some inferring um, from a lot of Scriptures to kind of get this concept, this idea that Scripture is talking about. Because it's not explicitly stated in, in that in the Bible. But the sinlessness of Christ is not one of those doctrines. It's very clear from Scripture um, that Christ was, in fact, sinless. Jesus himself proclaims his own sinlessness twice in the book of John, in chapter 8 and 15. He states that something to the extent that he is always obeying or he's always doing the will of the Father who sent him. And we know that sin is the opposite of God's will, right? It is anything that is outside of God's will, which is sin. And it could be something negative like stealing, or it could be failure to do something good like taking care of the poor. And so when Christ says that he is doing the will perfectly, that means that he is sinless. It means that he is not varying one way or the other, from what God has assigned him to do. We also know from Scripture that God cannot be charged with sin, and therefore, if God indeed willed this to happen, then it is not sin. But we don't just have Jesus' words. We have the words of many of his followers. Peter states in John uh, 6, verse 69, that Jesus was the Holy One of God. Now, holiness carries with it this idea of purity, this idea of righteousness, right? Everything that is opposite of sin. Now, the true definition of holiness is to be set apart. And obviously, being sinless sets someone apart. I don't know about you. I don't know anyone that's sinless. Does anyone? Anyone? All right, I'm not seeing any hands. So none of us know anyone that's sinless other than Jesus Christ. And so that sets him apart. But if that's not enough, Peter, he, he just spells it out plain and clear in his own epistle. 1 Peter 2.22 states it this way. He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The apostle um, John, right, Jesus is like BFF, he says almost word for word the exact same thing in his epistle, John 1 3 and 5, in him was no sin. Now, we can't have any theological uh, discussion without the Apostle Paul, of course. And so, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul chimes in, and he claims that Christ became our sin because he knew no sin. Now, obviously, Jesus knew what sin was, right? And so, this knew no sin, it carries the same intimacy that we've talked about before with knowing God, right? This personal, intimate relationship. 
But Jesus didn't have that close, personal, intimate relationship with sin from committing sin. He just knew sin. He experienced it around him, and obviously he experienced it on the cross when he became our sin. But he did not know it intimately because he was sinless. Now, in case you're just thinking, well, that's all good. I mean, right, this is just one of those old stories where our Savior has been whitewashed and all the bad things he did has been forgotten about, right? Well, we have four witnesses that really have no dog in the fight who claim the same thing. If we look at Pilate, Pilate's wife, the criminal on the cross next to him, and the Roman centurion, in one way or another, they all testify to Christ's innocence, to his sinlessness during his trial or during his execution. No more than just these claims about Christ's sinlessness, which are obviously the strongest argument for it, we also have the argument from silence or omission. And what I mean by this is that nowhere in Scripture do we have a story of Jesus sinning. I mean, I've read my Bible a couple times, and I haven't found a place where it says, Jesus sinned. Now, we have stories of him being tempted, but he never gives in. We have stories about him doing some crazy things, like flipping over tables, but he's never charged with sin. In fact, the only place in Scripture where we see that he is charged with a sin is the sin of um, blasphemy by his enemies, right, who don't know who he really is, and they charge him of blasphemy because he is forgiving sins and claiming to be God. Now, if he was just an ordinary man, then yes, this would have been a sin. But because he is God, because he has the power and the authority to forgive sins, then this, in fact, was not a sin. Another place that we see omission of Christ's guilt to sin is in his prayers. We have many of his prayers, but nowhere in his prayer do we see him confessing his own sin. But yet when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he teaches them to confess their sins. He knows that that is an important part of prayer. But yet he didn't have to confess his sins because simply he never sinned. And so if we take kind of all those arguments and we put them together, it really shows us that Christ indeed is sinless. So what does it matter? Right? I mean, cool, he's sinless. Like, why, why are we spending all this time on just this theology? What effect does it have on my life, right? Well, <laughs> there are so many implications of this sinlessness. Like, we could literally be here till next year talking about all the implications of his sinlessness. But for time's sake, we're just going to focus in on just a few. First, and arguably the most important application of Christ's sinlessness is that it qualified him to be our Savior. If he was guilty of sin, then he would have had to die to pay for his own sin, and therefore he couldn't die for our sins. 
He would have been just like the original Adam and every human after him, unworthy to die for another. Romans 5, 18-19, I think, says it best. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Right? This righteousness, this obedience, that's all part of the sinlessness of Christ. And since God could not find a man worthy enough to die, to take away the sins of the world, he himself put on flesh, and he came to earth, and he dwelt among us so that he could be that perfect sacrifice that we needed to bring salvation. So we see that it's necessary way back in the Old Testament for this sacrifice to be perfect. If we go all the way back to Exodus and the story of Passover, we see God commanding them to sacrifice this perfect lamb. Right? And all through the Old Testament, the temple worship period, and even into the New Testament worship period, they were required to bring this perfect, spotless lamb. No spots, no blemishes, no sickness, no broken bones, no cuts, no scars. It had to be perfect in order to count. And they put their sins on that perfect, spotless lamb, and it died in their place. And just like this spotless lamb, Jesus was spotless. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.19, that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. You see, the whole Old Testament, this whole system, everything in the Old Testament is really just a giant billboard pointing towards Christ. It was meant to train people's thoughts so that when Christ came and he lived this life and he died the way he died, that everybody would see, this is the Messiah. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been longing for. This is what we've been practicing. Because Christ perfectly fulfilled all the imagery, all the requirements, all of the covenants of the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews, whoever that is, they knew this. And that's why they penned in Hebrews 10, 11 through 18, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them in their mind. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
Y'all, this is some great news. Christ not only was the perfect sacrifice, but his sacrifice was perfect. He made it necessary for us not to have to offer any more sacrifices. That's how good, that's how perfect his sacrifice was. And this is why we don't carry over the Jewish practice of animal sacrifice into Christianity. Because Christ paid it all, and all to him we owe. He finished it on the cross. And there's nothing else that we can do to add to our salvation. We can't be good enough. We can't earn God's favor. We can't earn God's forgiveness. No, Christ. Christ did all of it by living the perfect life and choosing to lay down his life for us. This is why theology matters. It can take away all of our worries, all of our cares. No matter how many sins, no matter how bad you think your sins are, Christ's sacrifice is good enough, more than good enough. It is perfect. It pays for all of it. It pays for all your sins. It pays for all my sins. It pays for all the sins of every person who has ever walked the earth. That's how perfect his sacrifice is. But not only did his sinlessness qualify him to be this perfect lamb that was sacrificed, but it also qualified him to be our high priest who offers the sacrifice. What I mean is that Christ became our advocate, our mediator with God by living this holy life. The chief role of the high priest was to be the go-between between God and his people. They would offer the sacrifices up to God, and then they would also talk to the people on behalf of God. If we look at Moses and Mount Sinai, we see exactly this. He comes down, he brings the Ten Commandments to the people, and he tells them what God has said. But as soon as he's doing that, he has to go back up on the mountain and plead for God not to destroy the sinners who are already breaking the Ten Commandments. And one of the role, or one of the things about high priests is they had to be pure in order to come into the presence of God. If they were not pure, they would die. So in Old Testament times, they would tie a rope around the priest's leg, and they put little bells on the bottom of his robe so that when he went into the holies of holies, they knew if he died and they could drag him out so that nobody else, because nobody else was holy enough to go into there and retrieve the body. And so Christ's holiness, his, his sinlessness matters because it purified him, it qualified him to be able to go into God's presence and to make the sacrifices necessary to forgive us of our sins. Now, like I said, he's a mediator, and so his sinlessness qualified him to enter into God's presence, but his humanity allowed him to be sympathetic to us. His humanity allowed him to experience all the temptations that we face and to understand 
how strong the temptation is to understand how weak we are in our flesh. And this allows him to discipline us with love and patience. This allows him to be compassionate and caring of our situation. And this allows him to offer grace and mercy instead of wrath. Now, some people think that if it wasn't possible for Jesus to sin, then his temptation was invalid and he really doesn't understand the human experience. But when does temptation come? Before or after sin? I mean, if we look at Adam and Eve's experience, would we say that they didn't face temptation before they sinned? Or did they have to be this fallen nature, prone to sin. No, we see, in fact, that they were tempted before they had ever given in to sin. They still had the choice not to sin at that time. The temptation was extremely real, hence the fall. Now, I would also argue, as many other scholars do, that Christ indeed faced true temptation and to some extent, a greater level of temptation than we will probably ever know. And I say this because he endured temptation. Right? Temptation, it starts really small. And it grows, and it grows, and the pull just gets stronger and stronger until we, as weak humans, we give in. Because once we give in, right, we're not tempted anymore. But Christ, he, he, he didn't give in. He kept standing there, facing it over and over and over again. Let's see if I can clear this up for you, right? So think about that diet you're all about to start, right, for the new year, okay? Think about that. Then think about that little tan bag with the red stripe down the middle, right, with a little squirrel on it. You all know what I'm talking about, right? That nifty nuthouse goodness that you got for Christmas, right? Just sitting there right next to the TV, right? All right, maybe like me, you have no self-control. It's gone already. But anyways, right? Just for, imagine, imagine it's still there, right? And so you're on this diet and you know, you can't eat that. It's going to be unhealthy, especially the whole pound of it, right? Like, no, no, that, that, no, not good. But you're sitting there and you're, oh, I'm kind of hungry. You see it. Good, right? Like, oh yeah, I could. Mm, yeah, I want some of that. But then the, it grows, right? The, maybe the furnace kicks on and it's blowing the smell of that chocolatey goodness over towards you and just, I mean, you're doing everything you can to just stay there and not devour it. But eventually you, you give up and you indulge and you eat the whole pound of chocolate-covered gummy bears, <laughs> Right? And suddenly, the temptation's gone. You're like, oh, man, that was good. That was good. Because we allow ourselves in our minds to start rationalizing stuff, right? Well, I mean, I just eat one. It's not that bad. Like, I can just do an extra sit-up tomorrow. I'll be fine. Or, you know what? I'll, I'll just start tomorrow. Like, this is the last day of it. I'll just start tomorrow, right? So we give in. See, Christ didn't give in. 
he's still sitting there quoting scripture to those gummy bears, saying, no, I can't eat you in all your delicious, no, no. And so he is facing this temptation much greater than we ever will. And so he knows our weakness. He knows that we will fall. And this is why he gives us grace and mercy. What is grace and mercy? Well, it looks like compassion. It looks like understanding in that when we do sin, he just doesn't zap us with a lightning bolt. Right? He's there to say, hey, I forgive you. Now let's do better. Hey, stop killing yourself with regret and worry. You're still my son. I still love you. We still have a relationship because you've confessed this sin to me. So come on. Come on. I got you. I got you. Let me, let me help you to say no to this. Come on. Come on. Let's go to church. Let's get some brothers and sisters around you who will help you stand up to that. That's what his grace and his mercy looks like. If, if we are truly seeking God and truly seeking to eradicate sin from our lives, it's a much softer, compassionate grace and mercy. Now, if we're on the flip side of that, and we're just all in, we're fully engaged in sin, we know it's sin, but yet we don't care and we're still choosing it. Or we rationalize it in our head so that we really don't see it as a sin anymore. Then we can expect God's grace and mercy to look a little bit more like discipline. And I say that this is still grace and mercy because he's not utterly destroying you. He's not kicking you out of his family. You don't lose your salvation every time you sin. To me, that's, that's massive grace and mercy. But in fact, he loves you so much, he can't let you stay in that sin. He can't see you continuing hurting yourself and hurting his name. So he brings discipline so that you see, so that you feel the weight of your sin and you see just how disgusting it really is and how harmful it is. And this causes us, <clears throat> hopefully, to repent, to turn away from our sin and turn towards God where we will receive the much softer, the much nicer grace and mercy. So if you're in that situation where you're struggling with sin, maybe it's an addiction to pornography, maybe it's anger, maybe it's stealing, maybe it's lying, maybe it's lack of faith or trust in God. We have a mediator who understands your weaknesses. He understands your sin. He understands how powerful the devil is and how hard the devil is working to destroy your life and destroy his name. And he's there to offer you grace and mercy. So cry out to him. Repent of your sins. Turn to him and receive that grace and mercy. The interesting thing about this grace and mercy is that it allows God to be compassionate but also just. 
Because the ultimate grace, the ultimate mercy we receive is through the sacrifice of Christ. And so your sins are paid for and God still keeps to keep his holiness, his justice. But yet he's able to be merciful and kind to us. To help us get rid of the sin in our lives. Which is the last thing we're going to talk about today. Christ's sinlessness qualified him to be our example. This, this is where the sermon starts getting less theological and more applicable, right? Christ came as a human, and he lived a perfect life. He was the perfect human. He was what we were originally created to be. He was the second Adam. <clears throat> and so we can look to him to see how we should live. Now we could look to Paul, and he's got all these fancy lists of do this, don't do that. But if we look to Christ in his life, we see that he perfectly fulfilled all those lists. And he did it not just as a command, but he did it by example. He showed us what it's like to love the unlovely. He showed us what it was like to forgive the tax collector, and go and have lunch with them and share the kingdom of God with them and tell them the truth in love. Christ was the perfect example in faith, in obedience, and love for God the Father and love for his fellow man. 1 Peter 1, 13-19 puts it this way. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, his second coming. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the times of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I don't know what to say. It's right there in the Bible, right? We are called to be holy like Jesus. We are called to live like him. It's kind of cliche, and it kind of ruined it for us, but really the question we need to ask ourselves is, what would Jesus do, right? In, in all of our conduct, in all of our daily <clears throat> interactions with other people, that's what needs to be on our mind. What does holiness look like? What did Jesus do in this situation? And then we should do our best to imitate that. But in order to do this, we have to know Christ. We have to know how he lived his life. We have to be in the word, reading and understanding who he was and how he lived. And so, 
That's the basics, right? That's the meat and potatoes of Christianity. It's reading the word. Because we see Christ's life, but we also then see the commands that follow it in the epistles. The call to not be angry, to not fight, to not brawl with people. We see the command to love our wives as, we, as Christ loved the church. We see the command to be generous, to share with those in need. We, we see God's heart for the poor all through the Old Testament and what it means to, to fight for justice, right? To, to allow people to get what they deserve, to make people's problems our problems. Or as the Constitution put it, right? Life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness. Right? Those are Christian virtues that we should be seeking in our everyday life. Not just for us, but for everybody. For believers and unbelievers alike. Because that's really why we're called to this holy living. Is that we can make God's name famous. I mean, if we look around the world, I mean, just watching the news here in Wichita, right? A little toddler gets kicked in the store. A bunch of teens get shot up in a robbery. Like, the signs of this brokenness are everywhere. Greed, right? Dysfunctional government, people fighting over their own wants and needs instead of looking out for everybody, right? This is everywhere we look. We see sin. What would it look like if there was a called out set of people who lived God's way? Who lived for God's glory by putting their faith in action through obedience. Through holy living. Now some of you may have flashbacks like I do to the fundamentalists and just this legalism that they brought in this holier than thou out. That's not what I'm calling us here to. Because scripture is clear and we've already talked about it, right? We can do nothing to add to our salvation. Christ's sacrifice was that perfect salvation. And so we're still called out of faith to be obedient to Christ. But we can't lord that over other people. We can't force other people to be holy. Now, if they're a fellow believer in Christ, then we can definitely point them in the right direction. But we can't try and force people to this holy living. But we can put it on display for the world to see. Because there is something magical, right? When you go to that wedding, and they have the oldest couples dance, right? And you see that couple that's been married for 50 years out there. Right? I mean, that, that's what everybody wants. And if you talk to most of them, it's not all of them. It's because their life was centered on Christ. It's because they were practicing holy living. They were practicing living like Christ and putting other people's needs before their own. And this is how we make God's name wonderful. I mean, divorce is rampant. Every, everything just reeks of the devil. And so really the call for us to, to bring a new aroma, the aroma of Christ to this world, to, to really show the world what it looks like, what God's kingdom is going to be like.
I think that's the best witness we can have. And obviously part of that is holy living, is, is proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the truth that Christ is the way. And that we follow him out of faith, not out of earning our salvation and, and, and not out of... I mean, one of the sad realities that takes place is most people think that Christianity is just about morals. It's about making you a better person. And that's not what I'm calling you to here. I'm, I'm calling you to faith. I'm calling you to obedience, which is the expression of our faith. Not just to, Christ did not die to make you a better person. Christ died to satisfy the wrath of God. Christ died to pay for our sin so that we could be set free from sin. Now, do you get a better life when you do it Christ's way? Yeah, you really do. Is it perfect? Is it painless? No, not at all. Hardships are guaranteed to us. The devil is going to try and get you to doubt God. And so he's going to bring all this trials and temptations into your life. But if you are living in faith, if you are living in obedience, you can withstand those trials. You can stand up. So I want to end with just giving you a few more practical tips on this holy living. We already talked about the Bible, right? The thing that goes hand in hand with the Bible is prayer. Pray. Ask God for strength for holy living. In the midst of temptation, ask God for that grace and that mercy to be able to withstand that temptation. Ask other people to pray for you. Now this, mean, this is scary because this means you're going to have to confess your sins to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But y'all, you are some really good people in here. And I know that you're not going to go around gossiping and you're not going to go and ruin people's lives or judge them for their sins because you are just as guilty as they are. It may look a little different, but you're just as guilty as they are. So when you get together in your bridge group, don't be scared. We're all in this together. We all have the same mess. Confess your sins to one another. Social science has proven that accountability through telling somebody else is far stronger than if we just keep it to ourselves and don't tell anybody else. The other thing that goes along with holy living is fleeing from temptation. I mean, prayer can be really, it, prayer is really good, but sometimes you just got to get the fat out of that situation so that you're no longer staring at that bag of nifty nut house. Like, take a walk, right? And this is another command that the Bible tells us is to flee temptation. And another promise we have is that no temptation that you will face is unique to you. And God will always, always provide a way out. When I talk about fleeing, I like, or when I'm working with youth, I often talk about running from the police. So I'll ask them, you know, like, hey, you ever ran from the cops? And like me, most of them are like, oh yeah, I ran from them. And then I ask them, well, how fast did you run? 
oh man, that's the fastest I ever ran. Or I didn't even know I could run that. Then I was gone. I'm going to look them square in the eye and go, that's what you got to do with sin. When you're sitting there with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you're tempted to go farther than God wants you to go, you may have to stand up and run out of that room just yelling, I love you! I'll explain it all later! Right? Then you can text her when you're in a safe location. <clears throat> Sorry, I was just really tempted and I had to get out of there. That's okay. Now, it might not look that dramatic. Probably a better way is to put boundaries in place. Hey, we're not going to hang out together alone. Hey, we're not going to hang out together after 10.30 at night because I started to get sleepy and I can't stand up to temptation. Or maybe you're sitting there and for the hundredth time, your sweet little girl is doing that exact thing that you have told her not to do, right? And you're just so angry, you just want to smite them with the wrath of God. You may have to, again, physically run out of the room to flee that temptation until you can calm down and come back in and discipline them properly. That's all I got, church. Those three things right there are the best way for holy living. Be in the Word so we know what holy living looks like. Pray so we have the Spirit's power to stand up to temptation. Confess our sins to one another. Get accountability. And if bridge group's too scary, invite somebody out for lunch. So someone that you trust and respect and talk to them. Get it off your chest. Let them know. And lastly, flee from temptation. Run away from it as fast as you possibly can. Sin is ugly, it's vile, it will destroy you, and it blasphemes the name of God. It makes God look really ugly. Unlike holy living, which makes God look as glorious as he truly is. Let's pray, church. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just Jesus Christ, that he lived the perfect life, that he was sinless, that he could die to take away our sins, and that he is our priest who offers us grace and mercy when we do sin, Lord. Thank you for his example. Father, may we just seek in our lives, may we desire in our lives to live perfectly like Christ. Father, may your spirit strengthen us to live holy. Father, forgive us of our sins. Help us to live holy lives. In your powerful name.